At this time, I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, we're going to be looking at two of the most popularly known verses regarding the Word of God and what it is. This is a sermon about the Word that's from the Word of God. This is the Sword of the Lord sermon. We, uh, a couple weeks ago, had a 7.0 earthquake. I know we've talked about that a lot. And uh, for many of us, we've felt the aftershocks, and I guess all of us have, but some of us pay more attention to the aftershocks than others. Uh, we haven't had one, I think, for a couple days that, we have, that I have felt, but um, for a while there, there were several, you know, kind of like a daily check-in with God moment, right? And here it is. Is it a 5-0? Is okay, yes, Lord, I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible. Um, but it can be disconcerting to feel those aftershocks and to, to feel like, you know, is this going to be a bigger earthquake than just an aftershock or what, what's this going to mean? And life is kind of like that, isn't it? Where you have big things that hit you and then you have repercussions of the big thing that hits you and aftershocks happen and life experiences are like aftershocks where we have to hang on to God. And this morning, I want to point all of our attention to the word of God as what we hang on to in life through its aftershocks. I'm not very good at preparation like thinking in terms of an earthquake and where's the food, where's the flashlight, you know, but the emergency things. But the word of God should be like our flashlight that's stored in a drawer at ready's reach. When something hits, you know you can grab it, cling to it. And I know in life when I feel shredded down to my core, don't really know anywhere to go and anyone to talk to about what's going on in my life. And there's a catch-22 happening that seems unresolvable. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those circumstances that you really don't have a step one, two, or three way out of. I know that the only place I can go at that point is the Word. And I just want to commend that to you. The Word of God is simple, it's clear, and it's powerful in the moment when you need The flashlight, you need the emergency instrument to help see your way through it. And that's what the word is about. The word of God is about being spiritually prepared. It's what makes life livable. It makes what seems to be insane, sane again. If you look at these verses about the word of God, you'll find that the word of God is awesome In a couple of ways. Let me read verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, reading these verses about the word of God, and they are memorized verses by many, show us a word that is as powerful as it is terrifying, if you really look at what's there. There is high and highest accountability 
when we begin to speak about the word of the living God. So how do we make sense of these verses in chapter 4 in terms of what we've learned so far? Because to understand why this thunderbolt of accountability is given in chapter 4, we have to put it in context. The context of chapter 4 is finding rest. Verse 11, actually, if you look one verse up from where we just read, it says, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall to by the same sort of disobedience. So you have a couple things going on in verse 11. You've got the command, which is the central command of this chapter to strive, to push for rest, pushing to enter into a kind of Christian rest and not falling prey to what the wilderness generation fell prey to. In their unbelief, the wilderness first generation did not enter into rest. They disobeyed. They fell into disobedience. So the command might sound, as we've talked about for a couple weeks, it might seem counterintuitive. You're pushing to rest. Where I tried to clarify last week that this is a push in faith. You're Marching forward in the Christian life by faith, not in the flesh, but by faith, you're striving to rest. But I want it to become even more concretized this morning. And if you look at the text and what happened to the wilderness generation and you see what's going on, you'll understand how to apply striving to rest in light of the word of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, while the promise of entering rest still stands. To the church. Church, you can still find rest. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You could fall prey, or even seem to fall prey, to the same fate that the wilderness generation did, where they didn't make it into the promised land. What happened to them? Look at verse 2. For good news came to us. Just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. What does that mean? It means this. The word good news, euangelion, is the gospel message. But let's just frame it in light of the verses we just read in 12 and 13. The gospel is the word. God spoke clearly through Moses, to Moses, to the children of Israel. The word of God was there. Word of God saying, go, go into that land. Believe me and go. What did they not do? They did not believe and they did not benefit from what they heard. When the word hit them, it just fell aside like something falling off of a pan that's made of Teflon. It's just, you know, like butter sliding off. The word did not penetrate. It just, it, it wouldn't smack through their hard Heartedness. The old adage of the preacher said, I'd rather talk to someone with a hard head than a hard heart, right? It hit their heart and fell off. Look at verse 6. It says, Since therefore it remains to for some to enter it, this is talking about the church now. Don't do what they did. You can still enter into rest. What kind of rest are we talking about? We're not talking about promised land rest. We're talking about salvation's rest, being reconciled with God. We're talking about heaven's rest, which is eternal rest. Don't miss that. How do you miss it? It says, and those who formerly received the good news 
failed to enter because of disobedience. What are we talking about here? What is the disobedience here? The disobedience is not hearing and believing and trusting in the word of God. Look back up at verse 2. Let's reiterate, it was of no benefit to them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Some heard the word, some listened to the word, but by and large, that wilderness generation said, I'm not going to hear the word of God. And that, in verse 6, is failing to enter because of disobedience. You find rest by obeying and obedience here is listening to the word of God. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. How do you strive to enter into that rest? By obeying scripture, which obedience here is listening to, believing, clinging to, not rejecting the word of God. That's what we're talking about here. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What is the same disobedience? Not hearing the word of God, rejecting the word of God, believing you can run away from the word of God. Have you ever seen people who say, oh, I'll come to church, I'll come to church, but they don't come to church. The reason they don't come to church is because if that's a Bible preaching church, they don't want to hear the word of God. They don't want to feel what it feels like to have the word of God brought to bear on their lives. Do you hear what I'm talking about? The word of God is God's voice and God's accountability in the room. So people either want to come under that or they don't want to come under that. There's a lot of things people talk about, about likes and dislikes about churches, but really the issue is coming under the word of God or trying to get out from under the word of God. That's what we're talking about in this text and in what went wrong with the first generation and what's wrong with many people in the church today. The promise of entering the rest still stands, verse 1. This is the promise that was given through Moses to the wilderness generation. It was carried forth through Joshua, a picture of Christ carrying them into the promised land. It was reiterated again through Psalm 95, through the voice and pen of David, and it's for the church today. This is our promise, and it's through receiving the good news of the word of God. Not being like the children of Israel who complained, who murmured and said this, I want Egypt, I want world, I want the flesh, I want back there, I want food that's not manna, I want that. This is what we do. I want world, but what I want to compel you to from the word is for you, for your heart to cry and say, I don't want world, I want word. I want word, I don't want the world. That's the dividing line in the Christian life. That's what we're talking about. Don't complain. Go Bible. Strive for rest. And striving for rest comes with this powerful word warning in verse 12 and then in verse 13. And here's the principle of verses 12 and 13. This is what you want to remember from today's sermon. Come to the word Because the word is going to come to you. Come to the word in your heart. Receive the word. Because ultimately the word is going to be coming 
for you or to you in its accountability. Why? Well, number one, verse 12, the outline begins, God's word is unstoppable. That's what verse 12 is clarifying at the beginning. The word of God is living and active. It's alive. Let me say it this way. The word of God is on the move. It's the battle hymn of the republic said, his truth is marching on, right? Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching. The word of God is working. Whether people are believing it or rejecting it, the word is doing its work. William Barclay called the word instinct with life. It's personified here in that way. The word of God is the voice of God. The word of God is not God himself, but the word of God is, in its original autographs, the inspired, inscripturated voice of God. It's not to be trifled with. It's alive. The word of God is living. It's inspired. The liberals will say, oh, well, they want to diminish this truth and say, the word of God is like every other kind of literature, but neo-orthodoxy says that the word of God comes to life when we engage it in faith, then it's lively to us. That's not true. That's superficiality. That's where people try to put other quote-unquote holy books to measure up with the Bible, but you can't do that because the word of God is living. It is alive. It is irrepressible. It is as irrepressible as God himself. In fact, the seamlessness between 12, verse 12 and 13, where you have the word of God that is alive and living and powerful. And then verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. You have the word that's going out because God is speaking through the word and nobody's hidden from God. As Thomas Schreiner put it, theologian, he said, God, so to speak, is what God says or is saying. That's how we feel God's presence through what he's saying from his word that's alive. There's inherent dynamism. It's dynamism that cannot be thwarted. That's the unstoppable nature of it. And disbelieving the word of God, according to this text and context, disbelieving the word of God can be fatal. It can be fatal. Stephen called the word of God living oracles. Peter called it living and abiding as the word of God. It's powerfully working always. It's actively discerning believers from unbelievers, unbelievers from believers. It's like a winnowing fork that is uh, winnowing out the chaff. It's, it's a deciding factor between those who are resting and those who are rejecting rest. It's opening and closing rest to people all the time. It made its mark throughout history. It it overthrows tyrants, it overthrows kings, it reformed governments, it reforms the church. It's a living dynamic book that when it was put in the common man's hands, in everyone's hands, in everyone's usable language, it, it just transforms cultures. It opened up dark continents 
Think of Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission or William Carey going to India or David Livingston going to the dark continent of Africa where the word of God speaks and you hear revivals in South America. What's going on? Are these personality cults? No, we're not talking about the TBN network, okay? We're talking about people who are unnamed, people who we might know personally in the church. I mean, Bill Mills would be a great example of this. He is not a personality cult person. He's a person who gave his life to the propagation of the word of God going forth in living rooms behind the scenes that's transforming lives. It's the word of God marching, doing its work. Isaiah 55, 11, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Psalm 107, 20, he sent out his word and his word healed them and delivered them from their destruction. This is Martin Luther's testimony. He's still, his imprint is still felt in our world today. This Augustinian monk from 15, from 1500s. What was his testimony? He said, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. While I slept or drank with Philip and Amsdorf, these are his friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Peter preached at Pentecost, and we might say, well, Peter was a thunderous preacher. Sure, but the word of God does the work. Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What were they cut by? They were cut by what they heard. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I like the story of George Whitfield, that evangelist that came across the pond um, to the early colony um, colonies of our country with the Wesley brothers. He was a preacher. He was moving, moving on and grew in popularity. And he was a great orator and was known as someone who could just captivate thousands of people with his voice, but also with his manner. On one occasion, according to uh, biography, there was a, um, a group of detractors and they were called the Hellfire Club. And the leader of these detractors was a guy named Thorpe. And Thorpe got up mimicking Whitfield, mocking his cadence, his delivery. While Whitfield was preaching, he had Whitfield down so well that he could just brilliantly, with great accuracy, imitate his tone and facial expressions. When he himself suddenly, by hearing the word of God, was so pierced that he sat down and was converted on the spot. And Thorpe became a prominent Christian leader in Bristol, the UK. So the word of God's unstoppable, but it's also something more. It's irrefutable. You can't beat it. You can't refute it. This is the sword of the Lord. This is the Lord's superior weapon. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. The preposition who pair is there, super. It's beyond any weapon. It would be the blade of King Arthur's mythology, the legendary sword Excalibur. It is the superior, ultimate weapon of God. Ephesians six seventeen, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's built for penetration, penetration. 
I'm sure if we're trying to sell, you know, a devotional commentary on reading the word of God, we want to we want to just say that to the people. Hey, let's market this book. This book will penetrate right into your heart. Right? I mean, a lot of times it's marketed as daily bread and we understand that. It's milk and meat, we understand that. This is God's convicting tool. It's double-edged. Double-edged blade. A blade that's blunt in combat is of little use. A blade that's useful in hand-to-hand, close contact is that which can go through armor. It's armor-piercing. It's flesh-piercing. It's bone-cutting work. It's in full use. So the accountability is irrefutable. Remember, you come to the word because the word is coming to you. It is. Ultimately, you will be accountable to the word of God. And you can't fight this off. You can't run and hide. In Revelation 2.16, the church at Pergamum, Jesus Christ said, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword. Jesus gave other commands, one to Philadelphia, who kept his word. But if you don't keep the word of God, He's coming with the sword, two-edged sword. Think of the judgment that fell, befell the wilderness generation. I think there's a strong allusion to this with the two-edged sword mentioned in this context. Again, that generation did not believe God and they didn't go into the promised land, did they? No, they didn't go. Numbers 14 picks up on this story It says, none of those who despised me shall see it. That was God's judgment on them. Israel responded like so many of us do. They go, oh, whoops, whoops. I wanted to go. And that was the original plan. So let's force our way back into this original plan. Well, Numbers 14, 39 says, when Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly and they rose up early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are. We will go into that place that the Lord has promised for we have sinned, right? They want to make up for lost ground and get in there. But God said, don't go there. I'm warning you. You're under judgment. You acted in unbelief. Don't go there. And Moses said, you're transgressing the command of the Lord. Verse 41 of Numbers 14. 14, do not go up for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies for there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you and you shall fall by the sword, by two-edged, double-edged swords because you have turned your back from following the Lord and the Lord will not be with you, but they presumed, that's a key word, they were presumptuous on the Lord. See, we hear the word of God, don't we? We reject the word of God, don't we? And then we want to force our way back into God's favor through the flesh, not in faith. Presuming on the Lord. But what happened to them? They presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country. Although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. They didn't bring the symbol of the presence of God with them. They weren't going in faith, marching in faith. They were going in disobedience. 
Moses was smart enough not to do that in verse 45. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Israel presumed. God's word is our guide and it's our rule. It wounds and it heals. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, he called it a right Jerusalem blade. Its edges will never blunt. It will cut flesh and bones and soul and spirit and all. It hews down all those who disobey the word of God. Thirdly, it's indisputable. What's it doing? It's indisputable. It's piercing, see verse 12 of chapter 4, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, first of all, for you scholarly types, I want to just dismiss the idea that we're supposed to go into a study of the difference between soul and spirit, between suke and pneuma, and trying to say, okay, am I a trichotomist? Am I a dichotomist? Are we made up of three things or four things or five things? That is not the point of what the author of Hebrews is doing here at all. No more than trying to discern between thoughts and intentions. What the author is saying is that God's accountability goes into the deepest parts of the complexities of who we are. God is shining his searchlight into your soul. God is with you when you are alone or you think you're alone. God is in your mind. God is in your thoughts. God is into what thrills you in secrecy. He's in there. He's aware. The word of God is his voice. And the word of God is also a lifeline to go into our hearts. Think of like a deep pit where you just feel stuck. It's a lifeline that's down here with a flashlight on it. And it it shows us what's going on in the cave and, and darkness of our heart. But it's also a lifeline because when reality strikes and you say, oh, that's what's going wrong. Oh, that's what's what I'm doing that's sin. Then you can climb out, right? We want the word of God to come in and knife us to show us What's really going on inside? The word of God in combat language, again, is the sword thrust dropping down on flesh, cutting into the joint, laying it open, and laying the bone open so that we can see the marrow. That is the graphic nature of the picture of what the word of God does. Where's that on the flannel graph display, right? I mean, what is the marketing strategy? Open the word of God so that the word of God will open you. This is our word. This is the truth. And it better be this strong because it is from God. I think oftentimes we wonder why there's no effect on people when we want to challenge them, when we want to call them to church, when we want to call them to Christian morals or Christian morality. And we don't use the word of God. We don't use the Bible. We're we're really not going for the heart at all if we don't use the word of God. Listen, if we don't open the word of God in church, we're doing nothing here, right? We don't do anything. There's nothing happening if the word is not in church. People don't come to church because the Bible is opened, but you should come to church because the Bible is opened. 
Yes, it's heavy. Yes, it's authority. Yes, it's a searchlight. Yes, it makes us uncomfortable. But we want to be uncomfortable with the word of God so we can rectify things, so we can repent of things, so that we can make things right again, so that we can find rest. Striving to rest is obeying the word of God. Obeying the word of God is hearing the word of God, clinging to the word of God, believing the word of God, letting convictions grow in your heart. That's obedience. That's what we're called to do. It's irrefutable. You can't argue it away. God's word is everything. We're going to sing a song at the end of the sermon and it's all I have is Christ. And there are moments where God will flay you, where he will bring you to the end of yourself and you will say, all I have is Christ. And how do I get to this Christ? You get to him by reading his words to your heart in faith and communing with the living God. God's word is not only unstoppable, irrefutable. You can't argue it away Number four, God's word is inescapable. Look at verse 13, inescapable. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Now, verse 13 is broadening things, and there is a subtle shift from the word of God to God himself. But again, as I made the case earlier, God's presence is felt through the word of God, and that's what we're talking about. God's word is spreading like a net over mankind. Nobody is hidden or invisible from the watching eyes of God. This is what the word of God does. It builds accountability. It's what our culture wants to snuff out. It's what our media-driven culture, where everything is videos now, wants to say, well, the word of God is archaic. It's not for today. It's not something to think about. It's a distant memory. But all of that is not true. The more media-driven things become, the more the word of God and its authenticity will speak. The word of God will stand. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said, you don't have to defend the word of God. It's like a lion in a cage. You just have to let it out. The word of God is self-attesting and powerful. So no matter how media-driven our culture becomes, how postmodern our culture becomes, how androgynous our culture becomes, how blurred our, and mixed up our culture becomes, it doesn't matter. The word of God won't change as our culture changes. And a lot of times culture just cycles around and you have another generation will say, I'm sick of that. I'm sick of how upside down things are, how right is wrong and wrong is right. And, you know, there's every category in the world to create a victim culture. Enough is enough. What does the Bible say? And the Bible will be the backstop again as it always is. No creature is hid from his sight. No creature 
can avoid the accountability of God and his word. It's everywhere and it's exhaustively powerful. Job 26.6, Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. Job 28.24, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Psalm 33.13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. In the end, all the disguises will be ripped off, won't they? Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on good and evil, evil and good. Psalm 98, 90, verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light, in the light of your presence. Reminds me of children who run into the closet, those who are avoiding accountability. They run in the closet to uh, play hide and seek. They shut the door, pull the, pull the clothes in front of them. The parent goes, ah, are you in there? And they pull the clothes back and there's the child. And the child's standing there with his or her hands over her eyes, believing in self-perception that he or she is still hiding, still safe. The child is self-deceived. The child is found. The child is in the light as the lights are flipped on. There was a a couple of boys that were stealing apples in a private orchard, and it so happened that a great American astronomer named Dr. Samuel Alfred Mitchell was observing the sun through his telescope as it descended. And just as it set there, there came into view the crest of an orchard-covered hill some seven miles distant away where Dr. Mitchell watched the two boys through his telescope, one picking the apples while the other stood guard making sure they were not seen. Someone saw. A.W. Tozer said this in Knowledge of the Holy. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters. All mind and every mind. All spirit and all spirits. All being and every being. All creaturehood and all creatures. Every plurality and all pluralities. All law and every law. All relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires. Every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth. Motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. This is severe language. Look again at verse 13. But all are naked. Completely vulnerable. Stripped to the kernel. Without an outer garment. Exposed. Do you remember when the disciples fled in Mark? It says someone left his cloak. Just exposed. God knew. God saw that. The word exposure here is an interesting one. It's a wrestling term. In Greco-Roman times, there was Greco-Roman wrestling. And, you know, it's the idea of getting someone by the throat. In modern wrestling, it's, you know, the, the head and arm. You've got to put an arm in there. But if you control the head, you control the body in a wrestling match. And this is the idea of a soldier taking you by the throat, by the head, perhaps with a knife under the chin and saying... You have to face God now. You are exposed. Submission is the idea here. In the original language, you're exposed to the eyes of him. It's actually pros, it's 
toward face-to-face, eye-to-eye with God, with one to whom we must give an account. The word account there is hall logos. We are coming face-to-face with the living God, eyeball-to-eyeball with the word, hall logos, with the word. The accountability is God, and the accountability comes through his word. God's never been duped. He's never been tricked. He knows what's going on in your life. His word is exposing you to himself like a scalpel. He's digging in and showing himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all that's going on inside. At some time, one person said or another, a man must stop running from himself and his God, possibly, because there is just no other place to run to. There comes a time in every man when he has to meet God from whom eyes nothing, from his eyes of whom nothing can be concealed. This is Kemet Ebi, the God in you. So the word is inescapable. You say this, how is that encouraging to me? (laughs) Again, you can come to the word. Because the word is going to be coming to you. This context says it's still called today. If you read through Hebrews 4, it's still today. It's still today. It was that day for the wilderness generation, they failed. It's a few hundred years later, a day that David was reiterating in Psalm 95 saying it's still today. And then that quoted in the New Testament early church, it's still today. And then in the 21st century, now 2019, it's still today. It's still today. So the inescapable nature of the word of God can be viewed as a negative, but it can also be viewed as a positive because guess what? The hound of heaven could be running after you even this morning and he might catch you. You want the word of God and that truth to be marching towards your heart if you're running from him. Because the word of God not only judges and condemns, it also reconciles and saves. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Don't be dull of hearing. Be exposed by the mirror of the word of God, James 1. See who you are and react in faith, right? I served uh, under a a pastor. I was an associate pastor for 11 years in Little Rock, Arkansas, where the voices are raspy there. Not trying to harken back to any former president there, but anyway, that was weird. But uh, the pastor I served under, he, uh, the senior pastor I was learning from, he came from a broken home and he never really knew his dad, never knew him. So that kind of lived with him through his entire experience. He was raised in Osceola, Arkansas in a trailer park. And his mother, his senior year, uh, left he and his sister um, in the care of that teenage boy then who took care of his sister and himself. Um, He was in his 40s when I was serving with him there. And he was reunited with his dad. Through a series of circumstances, this is sort of the 
beginnings of the internet. I'm not sure if that had anything to do with it, but they found each other. And they reunited around a shared experience. And the experience was one where he was fishing with his dad in a river in Arkansas, a narrow river. And uh, he was probably three or four years old as a little boy with his dad and lost his way, lost his footing and fell into the river. And the river was rushing him away. And the dad knew that his son would be lost and gone if he didn't react immediately Dad dropped everything and went for the one thing he knew to do, which was to try to outrun his son. So he did it. He ran and ran and ran and ran, hoping that his kid was staying alive in the current. And he went out into the narrows, a little spot where he could reach his arm on one side and the other, nearly able to touch either side of the land, hoping that he would catch his son. And suddenly... He did, and he caught him. Think of that like God with his word, running alongside you, running, 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 going out, wading out into the water, waiting for you to come so that he can catch you. That's what the word of God does. It can catch you. It'll catch you up short, show your sin, and save you. Today, obey his truth. Enter into his saving rest today. Today.